Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beanless and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. As we have done at the end of the year for several years now, this is our year-end segment. And tonight, we have with us our friend of the program from day one. He's going to break it all down with us tonight. Please welcome back to the pod, David Decoden. David, thanks man, thanks for doing this again. Awesome to be back, David. Really appreciate it. Love what you're doing with the new network and uh, super excited. I know... I know we've done a lot of stuff together in the past, but these, these year-end review podcasts have been, I've always looked forward to them, so uh, very excited to, to chat about them and uh, everything that's going on in the world of tennis right now. For sure, nice little tradition we have going, and we'll, we'll continue on as, as long as you're good with it. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know, we've, we certainly have a lot of content to, to play with on, on these segments, so... Uh, a lot of exciting things going on in tennis, you know, end of 2019, start of 2020, so uh, very, very happy to be on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, all right, let's, let's get rolling. I mean, 2019, we had a lot of new faces, and not only a lot of new faces, but a lot of new faces that did extremely well in the tennis world. But at the end of the day, two of the big three swept all the slams, Novak at Australia, Rafa at Roland Garros, Novak at Wimbledon, and Rafa at the U.S. Open. Thoughts, man? The next-gen guys can't get these guys quite yet. Yeah, it seems like everybody, it's like slowly, slowly, some of these players are starting to break through. Maybe not even the next-gen guys, but some of the, you know, guys that are in their mid-20s right now, like the Dominic team, for example, you know, finalists at the French Open. But... Look, kings stay kings, right? It's a cliche phrase, and it's certainly been the case in in, the, in tennis and in ATP tennis for the whole decade. You know, obviously, twenty nineteen is wrapping up. We're about to start a new decade. Seeing a lot of uh, decade in review type things on these social media platforms, and as it relates to tennis, it's been largely three guys with you know a little bit of a shout out to Murray and Vavrinka in between, but. Uh, Again, very interesting 2019 season. I think, you know, you've talked about this a ton in the past, but even though the next-gen guys haven't broken through as, as tennis fans ourselves, we just have to be super appreciative of this golden age, this era that we're experiencing right now. And I'm sure it'll be very interesting. Um, it already is interesting with some of these new players that we've seen break through. Obviously, Titsy Potts winning the World Tour Finals in London. Uh, but to be honest, it's still Rafa, it's still Novak, still Roger knocking on, trying to knock on the door. So we'll see what happens in 2020. I mean, I know neither of us has particularly been great at predicting the future uh, in terms of our, of our tennis outlook, but I think we have a very large sample size over the course of the last 10, 15 years that shows that these three guys are always a safe bet for any Grand Slam that you go into, and it's hard to pick against them, even in 2020, with all of them being north of, you know, 31, 32 years old. So, uh, super interesting year, and, look, whoever's the first next-gen or non-Big 3 player to break through, it's going to be historic one way or another. Oh, uh, uh, agree 100% and all you, with all you said. And I want to talk about one of these next-gen guys who had an unbelievable summer and fall season. And that's Daniil Medvedev. And just to kind of give you a summary, right, to give the listeners a summary, summary, he makes the finals of the City Open, losing to Nick Kyrgios. He makes the finals of Montreal, losing to Rafa. He wins Cincinnati, beating Novak 
and David Goffin in the semis and finals, respectively. He then plays that unbelievable U.S. Open final, losing to Rafa in five sets. And he's not done just yet. He then wins St. Petersburg two weeks later. He wins the Shanghai Masters 1000 almost a month later, beating both Tsitsipas and Sasha, again in the semis and finals. Then finally runs out of gas at the Paris Masters event and at the ATP finals in London. I mean, what a run. And I'm going to tell you, I'll, I'm the first, I'll be the first to admit, I thought he was going to run out of gas in New York. I've seen this. There's been case studies of this. Guys have such, guys and girls have such great summers. I've spoken to this prior um, that they get burned out and they go to New York and they got that humidity and now they're going three out of five on the men's side and people bow out early. And that's what I thought would happen with Daniil. He did have some testy early round matches there, but he got through. And to continue that on, even post US Open was remarkable to me. Yeah, I mean, with with regard to Daniil, I think, obviously, he has a lot of physical skills. He's got a huge first serve, sometimes hits that first serve with a second serve, as we've often seen in that run that he made in the fall. Um, and he's, he's very fit, and that backhand down the line and, and backhand cross quarter are some of his most reliable shots. But for him, I think he just showed a level of mental fortitude that we've really rarely seen from anyone outside of the top three, top four. Um, And that's what he really needed to do because he wasn't having the greatest year going into it. He he kind of made a little splash in Australia, round of 16, uh, took a set off of Novak, I believe, in that match, beat Novak in in Monte Carlo, I want to say, but then didn't have the greatest uh, clay court season and then bowed out before week two to David Goffin at Wimbledon. And he kind of just really turned it around at that City Open, which is, you know, kind of a, you know, the City Open is what, the first tournament of the U.S. Open Series, right? Right. I I don't think they count that Atlanta one. That's much smaller. But, yeah, the first main one. Atlanta, (laughs) you know, the John Isner Open at Atlanta is, you know, one of the greatest U.S. Open Series. (laughs) Going into... uh, Going into Medvedev's success, you know, he really set the tone. And, look, obviously nobody could have predicted the results that he would have had, but his mental strength and and beating guys like Novak and fighting back, even though he didn't win that U.S. Open final against Rafa, uh, in fighting back, I mean, who who would have thought two sets love down with Rafa playing as well as he was playing that Daniil was going to force this into a 6-4 in the fifth? or whatever it was, yeah. whatever ended up being type of affair. It, it's just something we don't see often from players outside the big three. And for Daniil to do that and to back it up with, you know, a lot of times we've seen guys do well in a couple tournaments or play tight or beat some of the big three, but then they'll lose early afterward because of, you know, reasons X, Y, Z. He backed it up both physically and mentally and, for me, a lot of the credit goes to his coach, um, you know, Gilles Cervara. We, we really haven't, at least I personally haven't learned a ton about him, but it seems like things are clicking on all cylinders there. Obviously, he flamed out a little bit. You know, probably fatigue got to him in Paris and in London toward the year, but he's a, he's a grinder and he's a competitor, and that's not something I could have said about him when he first really came onto the scene a couple years ago. I remember the first time I watched Daniel play was um, in a early Davis Cup round in, in the old format against Novak. 
and he actually took a set off of Novak because he was just ripping the ball from the baseline, but he couldn't sustain that for a period of you know three out of five sets in, in the case of the old format, and and now he's just getting to this point where he's just a steady baseline grinder that runs everything down, and he's mentally tough. And you know the the comparison to Novak is hard to make at, at this stage because obviously Novak is is going to go down as as possibly the greatest player of all time, but. It's, it's shades of, of what Novak was able to really do when he locked in in 2011. And, you know, that's, that's high praise for Daniil, but I think he's earned it after the, the latter stage of 2019 that he had, um, as you documented. So, look, uh, 2020 is going to be tough to replicate that, and especially there's going to be more pressure, more points to defend, but I think he has the right formula mentally, and if he can stay healthy and play the brand of tennis that he wants to play... And, and maybe even expand, you know, hit that forehand a little bigger, I think the sky's the limit for him. Uh, we, again, we've seen that he could do it. He did show the results just now. And, you know, who knows, out of, you know, if, if we were to do a poll question for who's going to go out and win a Grand Slam, if it's not uh, Novak, Rafa, Roger, I mean, it's probably, a, you know, a toss-up between Medvedev, team and Tsitsipas, right? Yep, yep. So he's, he's right there. And I mean, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on, on some of his results and his outlook for 2020, but I think the mental fortitude is, is number one for him. Yeah, no, it was super impressive what he did again in the summer and fall. And I'm just curious as, as anyone and how he's going to back that up in 2020, him along with some other guys that we've already mentioned. Um, I do want to talk about Roger a little bit because while he did not win a slam, you know, he gave himself looks, and he had a good year. I mean, he really did. He won four titles, um, including Miami, which is a monster one. You know, Indian Wells, he was really close. I think he had team Love 30 in the third. If he breaks that game pretty much, right, odds are he's going to hold the next game and win it, and you win, and you sweep the, the sunshine double there. Then, of course, we all know what happens in Wimbledon. I don't want to rehash that. I know you're a huge Fed fan, as myself and a lot of others are. Um, he had looks and yes, he's 38 and yes, he didn't win a slam, but at 20 in 2020, I don't think you can count him out at all. I think he's still going to get looks. He's still going to be there late and maybe not every slam, but he's going to be there late and he's going to be a tough out for anyone in each of those slams. That's my opinion, at least. All right. Do I have, do I have the floor? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take a sip of water while we while we all listen to you. Okay, so as you know, for for those of you out there that are you know, let's say legacy or day one listeners to to courtside with Beelis and Tennis, you'll know that I've often been unspoken in my unquestioning you know love and respect for Roger Federer um, in in the world of tennis, but. Here's what I have to say, and, and, and it echoes a lot of what you just mentioned about his 2019 season. Um, under, if, if you're obviously comparing him to anybody else, it's a fantastic season. You win a Masters 1000, you win a couple, you know, more than a couple 500 events. He's a king in, in his hometown in Basel, and he's, you know, consistently putting up results that anyone on the tour would, would love to have. And he's one swing away. And he's one swing away from winning a, exactly. a slam. Exactly. And here, here, here's the thing on the one swing away thing. And I know that 
um, you and uh, Luke Jensen talked about in one of the recent podcasts about when you guys were talking about how, you know, even the grace, it's you're not, not only just the grace, but it's the losses that stick with you more often than the great wins do. And, and Luke had mentioned that, you know, this is something that's going to stick with Roger for, you know, a very long period of time. And in my view, you mentioned that Roger's going to have chances, he's going to get looks, he's going to be around. I don't know how many more looks there are left. I mean, there is... I'm, I'm of the opinion that 2020 will be Roger Federer's last season as an ACP touring professional. Now, and then you can put me on the record, if it's a bad take and he plays for way longer, I'll, I'll suffer the consequences because I love watching him play. But... I think one of the things that has allowed Federer to have such longevity and to continue playing so well, especially in his late 30s, is how well he's, he's shaken off some, some really disappointing losses in his career. Because, you know, if you're playing the what-if game, he could have more than 25 majors. But he's at 20, and look, I think that, you know, from a physical standpoint, knock on wood, he obviously seemed to be in pretty good shape last season, and... Uh, I, I think he's going to do everything he needs to do to put himself in a position to win those tournaments. But from a mental standpoint, um, I'm just not sure how much how much longer he's going to want to do this. And one of the things that, you know, for your listeners, if anyone watched the uh, ESPN Federer All Access, um, you know, clip, documentary, whatever you want to call it, sort of describing his, his exhibition tour with Alexander Zverev in South America um, and Mexico over the course of, you know, what was it, a couple weeks at the end of November, um, that really, you know, shed a light on some of the things that are going through Federer's mind right now. And, and they don't exactly all relate to what's going on on court, but one of the things that he said without giving too much away is that he really wants to, you know, to make sure that things are fresh and that they're, you know, new things that he can experience in his tennis career because the more things become old and the same, the more, you know, he risks potentially losing, you know, the, the interest and love that he has for the game. And again, that, there's, it's impossible to say how much of a correlation that has with results, but, you know, Federer, we don't hold him to the standard of any average player. Right. We hold him to the standard of, is he or is he not the greatest player of all time? And if he wants to still fight for that, he's going to have to win at least one more major, if not more. And I don't know how if he can do that in 2020. Again, that's one person's opinion. I'm sure there are a ton of you know listeners out there who are Fed fans that believe that you know if he gets another 40-15 forehand wide shot in the Wimbledon final this year, he'll convert it. I certainly hope that's the case. Right. But I just think that. You know, some of the things are starting to line up where it just seems to me like this might be the last the last rodeo for Roger. He's always talked about the 2020 Olympics, obviously, in Tokyo this upcoming year, and that'll be a huge event for him. But um, I don't know. I, I just – it was an awesome year. There were some disappointments, obviously, if you hold him to that high standard. But it's, it's going to be tough to see if he can, uh, he can pull through in 2020. Oh, I, I really appreciate that insight. And, you know, I agree with wholeheartedly with, with most everything that you said. There is one thing I want to add about the documentary. And, in this, you know, they, they printed this out on the screen a lot. 
If you notice the times that he's flying at night and waking up early in the morning, and, and my, my um, friend and tennis reporter Blair Henley talks about this all the time, people don't realize he is always on, and he's just not on during those two, three hours on a court. He is always signing autographs, always doing press, traveling at all these God hours, and his energy level is unbelievable. Now, that's a gift. I mean, not everybody has that, and you know, I don't know if it's genetics or whatever, but um, he's been incredibly fortunate to be able to do that because it wears on you, and he's doing that day after day after day. So more credit to him and what he's done to the game, and, and, I, and this is starting to sound like a swan song for him, and I don't want it to do that. I just wanted to mention that, that really take note of what he does for the sport of tennis. He is unbelievable, and he's on at all times, and that wears on a person, and for him to have that energy is, is certainly incredible. So take it's note of all that. interesting. I mean, the energy is there. Um, I, I, I just don't know. My, my feelings are kind of mixed. Like, if, if, you had, if you had a pick, would you want, like, a, a Roger Federer, like, retirement tour, or would you, would you want it to kind of, you know, just just end on a whim whenever he announces it. I mean, I, I, it makes me kind of think of the two most memorable retirements that I uh, experienced in tennis, and obviously one of those, probably the most recent one being of, of Andy Roddick, where he just announced the, the last week that this is it, this right. is my last U.S. Open and I'm out. But then you had in the case of Andre Agassi in 2006, he announced, I, I believe it was either right before Wimbledon, yeah. that he was going to be done after the U.S. Open. So it's going to be very interesting to see. You know, I think we'll be able to tell pretty early from how Roger behaves in Australia what the rest of 2020 will look like. Obviously, the results won't be easy to predict, but I think we, should, we probably know his schedule at this point. It's going to be very similar to this year. You add the Olympics, Labor Cup, um, and then, you know, honestly, next uh, next October in Basel could be it, could be not. But um, anyways, yeah, la- all the listeners to look into the documentary and, you know, just shows a different side of him that maybe you don't always see on the court. For sure, for sure it does. And, and event, you know, I want to leave, we could talk about Roger forever, um, but I do want to add that he was recently quoted saying that, you know, let's say he doesn't have the greatest results in his last year or whenever it is. He goes, a lot of people don't remember your last games or matches, respective of what your sport is. I mean, Michael Jordan, I mean, he's a bull. Yeah, he played in the Washington Wizards. No one's going to remember that. And everyone wants to go out on top, and I get that. But he's done so many incredible things in his career that no matter what he does, whether he does go out on top or whether he doesn't go out on top, he's not going to, I mean, be, be remembered for his subpar results. I mean, he, he's, he's arguably the greatest tennis player of all time. So enjoy it while we can, and we'll see what happens with, with, with Fed. Okay, moving on. Um, I want to talk about a group of players, and they're all from the same country, and that's Canada. And this was really the year of the Canadians. And on the female side, which we'll get into in detail here, we have Bianca Andreescu. And then on the guys' side, you had Felix, you had Dennis, you had Milos, and you had resurgent Vasek Pospisil. Um, And you saw what they did late at the end of the year getting to the finals of Davis Cup. This group of players, and especially the men, remind me of the late 80s, early 90s of the Americans. The Chang, the Couriers, the Sampras's, the Agassiz. Now, now, now let, me, let, me, let me make a statement there. 
Let me make a statement there. Let me make a caveat, big caveat there. I just mentioned some of the greatest players of the game. And at that point, those guys were winning slams at, you know, Michael won it at 17. Uh, Agassi was three in the world at 18. Sampras winning the U.S. Open early. Um, You know, these guys are winning slams 17 through 21, 22. And the men's side now, that's just not going to happen. But what I want to say how it reminds me of them is there's a young core group that they're all coming up around the same time. Obviously, Milos and Basic a little more experienced, but there's a core group of players and they're pushing each other and they're young. And on the female side, Bianca did win a slam. Now, obviously, it's different age groups when you're talking female versus male, but that's the caveat. I'm not comparing them as far as results to the late 80s, early 90s of the Americans, but it just reminds me of that young group coming up. There's a crop of players and they're doing really, really well. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. Three, four, five players that have somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three majors. 
I think she'll quickly um, end up in that category, and, and it's exciting. It's it's her, it's Osaka, a lot of young female tennis players, and obviously, you know, being the fact that she's from Canada, that's got to be super exciting for for Canadian tennis. They've they've certainly been having more success than, than they've ever had. Yeah, and to put Bianca's year in perspective, um, and we'll talk about 2018-2019, in November, in 2018, she was playing a 25K in Lawrence, Kansas, and did not win that tournament. And she lost to a very good player, Katie McNally in the quarters. Katie won it. But to be playing in a 25K in Lawrence, Kansas, and then a few months later winning Indian Wells, then she had some health issues, got better obviously in the summer, winning the U.S. Open, and an incredible... um, it was, it was really mature. She had a very mature composure. I mean, here she is. She's up 6-3-5-1. Serena comes all the way back. New York crowd going crazy. Got so loud she had to put both fingers in her ears to kind of you know, drown out the noise. Regroup. Win those next two games. Um, this happened quick, and she did deal with injuries. So hopefully um, she will stay healthy, and, and I'm with you. I'm a big fan of her, and she can, she can hit you know, anyone off the court. So... Yeah, Canadian tennis is, is bright. So we will again see how what 2020 brings. Okay, let's do a let's do a few quick hitters and we'll kind of span the 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 spectrum of some young players of some of the big three and we'll go from there. You ready? Yeah, absolutely. Let's fire them off. All right. Yannick Sinner starts the year 550, ranked 550th in the world. He wins the next gen. He's now ranked in the top 80. People who have been in the know on this guy for a while have been speaking extremely highly of him. And when you see this guy play, very clean. I think, uh, I may be wrong, but he's 17. He may have just turned 18. Uh, I'm not sure, but he's right around there. Um, very clean strokes. No, Not a lot of extraneous movement in the strokes where a lot of things can go wrong. And people are saying the sky's the limit for this guy. What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't think the, the strokes, I don't think, are a huge part of the equation. I mean, you can have janky strokes and be a top whatever top 20 top 15 player on the tour i think it's all it's all similar to what i said about medvedev earlier it's it's all about the mental side and something that he showed me um in the next gen finals particularly in the final against the alex demonor playing with a lot of pressure in his home country uh everybody wants him to win and he just came out and he just he just played his game and and again that's not you know that's not breath you know, breathtaking analysis. It's nothing revolutionary, but just the way he was composed under pressure, just quiet fist bump, you know, squeeze the fist, have the composure, and and, and don't go bouncing off the walls, you know, pumping it up after every other winner. And I think that's very key and something that, you know, some players have struggled with, especially, again, having success at a young age. Um, but, but even besides that, uh, obviously, the ascent in the rankings is, is very notable, and I think he had a top 10 win um, against Gael Monfils, if I'm not mistaken, at one of the indoor events, maybe Antwerp, um, in the month of either late September, early October. So he's on the rise. Italian tennis in general is on the rise. I mean, we haven't talked about it, but Matteo Berrettini had a phenomenal yep. season, uh, top 10 player. So that's that's another name to keep it out. But for Sinner, look, the the data doesn't you know the facts don't lie. The last two winners of the next gen finals since this tournament's uh, been incepted, Hyun Chung wins next gen finals at the end of 
the year 2016. Right. He goes out 20, or I'm sorry, I think it was at the end of 2017. Um, maybe it was 2016, I'm not sure. He gets to the semis of Australia, yeah. He gets to the semis of the, of the Australian Open. Last year, Stefano Tsitsipas yep. wins the next-gen finals. He gets to the semifinals of the Australian Open. Yeah, and and he won the and he won the ATP finals in London. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I mean, I'm not saying Sinner is going to be winning the ATP finals next year because you know Tsitsipas, Pons, as we've seen, it seems like a one one of a kind player, and Sinner could be too. For all we know, he's just a little bit younger. But you know, we obviously you know, if there's anyone gambling out there. The odds for for Sinner to get to the semis of the Australian Open are pretty juicy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're if you're trying to play a little wheel of fortune on on the next gen finals, Sinner might be your guy. Yeah, we we, we don't promote we don't promote gambling on this, but that's promote, good advice. We don't promote that. Or, <laughs> you know, if people people are saying right. So Sinner Sinner's been playing great, and I think the future for him is very bright. Yeah, agree. Um, Another player that we have not mentioned at all, and gosh, she's my daughter's age, and she took the tennis world by storm. 15-year-old Coco Goff, round of 16 Wimbledon, winning an incredible third-round match over Polona Hercog. Uh, U.S. Open, little run in U.S. Open. She ran into Naomi Osaka in the third round, um, lost her, obviously no shame in that. But my gosh, has, has she won a title later in Linz? I don't want to uh, forget about mentioning that. Great doubles results with Katie McNally. We mentioned her name a little bit. Coco Goff, what do you think, man? Super exciting. I mean, there's, there, there's, there's not much else you can say. I mean, she, she honestly took the... I had no idea who she was when she walked out of the court against uh, Venus Williams on court one at Wimbledon in the first round. Now, maybe that's my fault. Um, because I, I know that there was a lot of hype about her playing the juniors and and whatnot, but look, credit to her. Um, seems like she's she's got what it takes mentally. She's she's obviously she qualified she, too at Wimbledon. She qualified. Oh yeah, 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 she earned it. She yeah, earned it. this wasn't some this wasn't some some wild card that was given out. She earned it, and um, the fact that she got people talking about like the the rules in women's tennis about how many tournaments you can play below the age of 17, yada, yada, yada. It just shows that she's having an impact on the game. Now, again, it's, it's a four-month, five-month sample size. If she can continue doing it in 2020, especially at such, at such a young age, it'll be remarkable. I guess the most recent example, I think Amanda Enisimova, who's, yep. I want to say, a top, top 20 player right now, maybe top 25, I don't have it in front of me, but... She started having some success, age 16, 17. So, um, obviously, Coco really shot onto the scene with, with her results at Wimbledon. But, look, if she's got the right people around her, and, and I'm not the first person to say this, you know, they asked Rafa Nadal about this at, uh, at Wimbledon, too. If she's got the right people around her, I know she's training with Patrick Moritoglu, uh, who's, you know, developed, you know, obviously coaches Serena, um, as part of the Tsitsipas coaching camp. I mean, he's, he's a guy who clearly knows what he's doing out there. So if she's got the right people around her, and, you know, she's obviously an, an amazing competitor, again, we, we'd love to, you know, as, as American tennis fans on the women's side, we've, we've been very lucky. You know, with the Williams sisters and, and other players that have had success, you know, this would be 
Yeah, I mean, remember, 2017, we had a U.S. Open semis, all were U.S. women. So, yeah, exactly. we've been lucky. Exactly. Okay, a couple, uh, these questions go together. And um, I'll, I can list my prediction. I could list some other people's predictions if you want that we've had on and talked with. But I will first ask you, will the big three sweep the slams in 2020? And if not, give me a name. And if you want some names that, that have been thrown out there, I'll do that for you. I mean, they're not, they're not shocking, obviously. Yeah, that Blair. Yep, Blair Henley. Blair Blair Henley picked Steph. I picked Daniil Medvedev. <laughs> I I picked Daniil Medvedev, and then Sal Katz, who we're going to have on next uh, their next next segment. He picked, I believe, Dominic Team. Now, if Rafa, and again, we all help, we all hope he's healthy. If he's not healthy, then obviously for for if he's not healthy for Roland Garros, that opens the door way way wide for Dominic Team, who's been to two finals. Yeah. But yeah, assuming yeah. the big three are healthy, yeah. So thanks. Okay, we, yeah, we'll all see. All right. So you and Blair got stuff. Okay, um, I'll ask you this one: At the end of 2020, does the order get rearranged for the most slams? Right now, we are at Roger at 20, Rafa at 19, and Novak at 16. Do you still see, do you still see, I mean, those numbers can change, but do you still see the order being as it is today? No. I believe that at the end of 2020, Roger Federer will have 20 slams as is. I believe Rafael Nadal will have 21 grand slams. And I believe Novak Djokovic will have 17. Yeah. Yeah, I could see it happening. So... So I think uh, after 2020, Rafa is in the driver's seat. Yeah, well, we'll see again. You know, he owned, he owned one slam, so that obviously yeah, helps. No, 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 no. I mean, I love Rafa. Um, you know, you know, I love Rafa. I, I like, I, I, I love Fed too. So, I mean, I, I, we'll see what happens. It's again, we're blessed, man. We are absolutely blessed to see these three guys. Um, before we end. There's been a lot of talk lately on various podcasts and various discussions. Uh, you know, obviously, our sport is so individually based, and you're always competing against the guy across from you. And there recently have been some amazing Team Cup competitions. I mean, Labor Cup, my God, that thing is blown up like no other, and people love it. Um, there's a few more. Obviously, Davis Cup was reformatted different way. You have had World Team Tennis. Now, let's be honest. I'm not going to put World Team Tennis on a stage of a Davis Cup or Labor Cup. But there's a few other team competitions that are starting to creep up. And I'm going to let you talk about it a little bit. Um, uh, the players love it. The fans love it. There's no doubt about it. Are we at a risk of our, our calendar is so jam-packed as is 
Um, are we at a risk of, one, even adding more weeks to the schedule, which you know I'm uh, not in favor of, um, and you also run the risk of oversaturating um, these types of team events where, where some are just kind of meaningless at the end of the day? Yeah, okay. I think, I think this, there's two parts to this question. I think the first one is the oversaturation, and it's certainly a possibility. Here's a reason why I would say that it's not really happening yet, and it's because um, each of the competitions that I think we're discussing here, um, they each have something different to offer. And I, I'm, I'm going to briefly take, you know, not to disrespect World Team Tennis, but it's, it's like four weeks long, and not a lot of the top names are playing it, and it's really not for, you know, the top of the tennis game. I right. know the Williams sisters have played, the Bryan brothers have played, et cetera, et cetera. But let's just put that one to the side of the thing. I think Labor Cup, in my eyes, is by far and away the standard. Prague was a smashing success. Fed Nadal doubles together. You know, we, some of us here in Chicago, experienced the success of the second Labor Cup firsthand. I think I remember you telling me that, you know, you were just... You want to go there at all costs, you know, whether you even had a ride or not. I mean, that was just such a, such a fun time when that tournament was out in Chicago. Yeah. And then they reaffirmed it was Geneva, and of course it was going to be a success in Rogers' hometown. Right. So we're in a position where that's like the standard, but it's a very it's a small competition, right? Labor Cup is only for, what, 10 to 12 people to right. participate in, and it's got this glamour to it, you know, not just because of the black cord and how it looks, but because you have to be really good to play it. Whereas Davis Cup, you know, if you're um, a top, whatever, four or five player from one of the, you know, top 18 countries in the world, you're going to at least have a shot to compete. You know, that's that's how there's a little difference there. There's a lot more exclusivity to the Labor Cup, and I think that's what's made it kind of given it the... Ryder Cup, President's Cup, or that golf has, if, you know, for, for those of you who are golf fans and maybe watch those competitions. With Davis Cup, what they have is the tradition. It's, it's the history. I think it was an okay outcome this first year. There was definitely interest. It would be nice if it would be televised in the U.S. by Tennis Channel, for instance. I know Fox Sports 2 had it um, in, in some markets, but um, I think the TV part of it was, it was a big uh, thing that maybe was lacking in the U.S., but I'm really curious to see what happens with this new ATP Cup starting January 2nd, um, also Tennis Channel. I mean, I'm, I'm plugging the network here, man. Yeah, uh, <laughs> thank it's, you. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be fun because, again, it's ATP-only competition, but there's a lot of different countries that are competing, a lot of players that are going to have a chance, and this one brings something near the table because there's points, a lot of points at stake to win. Yeah, there's some controversy with that. There's some controversy because some people are not eligible to play. Yeah, we've all seen uh, John Millman and the Taylor Fritzes have come out with their takes. And look, like you you know, I'll honor their side of the equation. But but you know, just from a high level, thirty thousand foot level perspective, I just think that it's going to be very interesting because it's something new. It's cutting out old tournaments in the calendar, I believe in favor of a different kind of preparation for the U.S. Open, and I'm sure, I'm sorry, for the Australian Open, and I'm sure in whatever press conferences are done before the festivities begin in Melbourne, they're going to talk about what happened in, in Perth, in Brisbane, in, in Sydney, 
with the and, and Adelaide with the um, the HCB Cup. So oversaturation, maybe not as much the problem now because every tournament brings something different to the table. The second part that you mentioned about the calendar that is a concern because we saw with Davis Cup these guys were were getting back at like four in the morning yes. in their hotel rooms after the matches. I mean that just seems more like a scheduling thing. But, and also having it the week after the, the World Tour Finals kind of maybe limits some guys that you might get committing for that. Right. Um, I know, you know, I'm better, and I mean, Federer doesn't apply because Switzerland wasn't in it, but Zverev didn't play for Germany, et cetera, et cetera. Um, ATP Cup, I think a lot of players are going to be playing it. I know, I think Federer might have dropped out for whatever reason, and, and Berrettini just dropped out for Italy. But it'll, it'll be interesting. And the schedule, look, I mean, You've had plenty of suggestions about the schedule. You know, everybody can talk about how to remake the schedule, but there's so many variables at play in terms of financials, in terms of the leadership of the tour. It's just, it's too many things to juggle at once. I think, let's just see how the competitions play out. We'll, after 2020, we'll have, you know, one full year of seeing all three, four events play out, and then we can, you know, start, start making judgments. And what I just hope is that the tour whether it's ATP or the ITF that they're, or, or the Labor Cup organization, teammates, that if changes are made moving forward, that they are proactive and, you know, in the best interest of both fans and players. I think as fans, we're always going to say, hey, more tennis, you know, why not? Obviously, sign me up, more eyeballs. But for the play, it really takes the buy-in of the players to make a great competition, and I think that's why Labor Cup works. And, you know, definitely if you're watching the end of Davis Cup, you know, whether it's the Canadian team or the Spanish team, I mean, those guys were bought in. Yeah. And um, that's ultimately going to be the test. And we'll see. It's, it's, it's very different. You know, team competition is, is not something that's, you know, very much in the fundamentals of the game of tennis. But it does bring out a very interesting side of the players. And I think it's ultimately a positive value add. So, again, we just have to see how it plays out. And... You know, I think you know you'll you'll be covering it. Obviously, I'll be I'll be watching it on the couch, you know, from home, and and we'll see we'll see how it happens. Well, I mean, we hit on quite a bit. I mean, we're over forty minutes right now, and I think that is a good place to kind of wrap up. Um, really appreciate your insight on these points. Um, if anybody wants to add anything that we spoke, you can find me on social media. Um, you know where to find me, my Facebook page, Venus and Santa's Twitter, Instagram. Um, David, I don't know if this is the third or fourth year-end segment we've done, but I really appreciate you doing these. Obviously, open invitation whenever you're available. Um, you're always welcome to come on. You've been, you've been on with me basically from day one. So I want to wish you um, a happy holiday season, a very happy new year, and I really enjoy doing these year-end segments with you. And, and thank you, David. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, David. Uh, love what you're doing. Uh, love the new network, and uh, really excited for another another great season of tennis. Appreciate you having me on. I appreciate it, David. I'll talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Bye. So there you have it. 2019 year-end segment with David Zakoden. Again, that's our third or fourth one that we've done together. I really enjoy doing that, and David is so knowledgeable in the sport, and he adds so much to these segments. So... That's really a wrap. Um, I think there may be one more segment after. We'll kind of do like a mini um, year-end type of deal. But 
at the end of 2019, I think I did around 30 podcasts. We did about 36 Facebook Live courtside segments. Um, I'm still kind of figuring out what I want to do with that going forward. Um, now that I'm part of the Tennis uh, Channel Podcast Network, I want to kind of weigh what, what I want to do uh, in 2020. We also went on site at a few tournaments. I'm scheduled to go to Del Rey in 2020, and we got a nice little surprise for you. Um, I think near the end of January, so stay tuned with that. We're going to have a nice little surprise. Um, it's related to the Delray uh, Del tournament and the Men's 250 in February. So with that, again, um, thank you to all my guests, and thank you for everyone who's supported this. Um, please subscribe. Courtside of the Olympics Tennis, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. And that's a wrap, everyone. Happy holidays and happy new year. Thank you.